Ringer Films and HBO's Jagged is the next installment of the Music Box series, taking you to 1995 when a 21-year-old Alanis Morissette burst onto the music scene. With never-before-seen archival material and an in-depth interview with Alanis herself, Jagged explores her beginnings as a young Canadian pop star, the rocky paths she faced navigating the male-dominated music industry, and the glass ceiling she shattered on her journey to becoming the international icon and empowered artist she is today. Watch or stream Jagged on HBO or HBO Max this Thursday, November 18th. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, imploring you to read Plato. Read Plato. It's Andy Greenwald. No, there were so many ones about like joining up, double acts, fuckety fucks. I was surprised you went with Plato, but I, that's it's good because you think of me as bookish. Spettenberger pod. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? What's up, Captain of the Tampa Bay Cuccaneers? We ready to go? We ready Thank to do you. this? Yes. yes, the spread offense. It's the Succession Podcast. It's episode six, What It Takes, where Logan Roy goes to market to pick a president. And Andy and I are going to break down the episode. We can start with some general feelings uh, trending up or down. Andy, did you where, where you where you want to start? Well, we usually do the state of succession before we get into the nitty gritty, right? Right. I think that, and I, I don't know, you know, we haven't, we didn't pregame. So no. I don't know where you are with this. I certainly, we're recording this on Thursday. We don't know where, um, we don't know where the pulse of America is at. It's not like we work for ATN. But I feel strongly at this moment that when the history of the show is written, this episode is going to be, is going to be mentioned. I think this is an extremely important, consequential, and masterful episode of Succession. I thought it was I very, it. very, very important. And yeah. I, it reminded me of other times on this show, and we've, we've discussed kind of at an arm's length over the years when we've been discussing Succession is the relationship between the audience and the characters. And, uh-huh. you know, the traditional television relationship, I think maybe, say, best exemplified by something like Friday Night Lights, where you start to almost project yourself into the world that you want to be in, have, you know... Eric Taylor, Tammy Taylor be your dad and mom, have these people be your brothers and sisters, have these mm-hmm. people be your friends, have this town be the town you live in, stuff like that. That may not apply to everybody, but you get where I'm going. There's that version of TV. And then there's a version of TV that is succession where because of time spent, I think you kind of tend to start to sympathize with, empathize with, identi- not identify with, but just like your, your sheer amount of time you spend with characters develops a familiarity and maybe even an affection. And then Edgelord Roman comes out. You know what I mean? And every once in a while, this show reminds you who you're watching. And I I think that that's pretty important. Um, So I I was curious whether or not you saw things that way here. I know what you're speaking about. And I loved it. And I found it bracing. And I think that my main, you know, I I can't wait to talk about some of the um, just story mechanics at work here, what this episode does for the season, what it does for the trajectory of the show at large, and specifically the diving in uh, feet first into the world of politics the way the episode did. But I think because you you, you brought up the Roman thing, and we've spent a couple weeks being like, well, Roman's humanity of all these Roy's is the most um, tangible. On the surface. It is the most on the surface. And then, yeah, he does a full, <laughs> he does a full uh, 
performance art red pill piece. Pivots to um, H. Yeah. He pivots to the hard H. Yeah. That could be potentially off-putting, et cetera, et cetera. But I think rather than finding it off-putting, I found it even more compelling because it is just the other side of his, um, you know, impossibly irrepressible sadness and pathos. Mm -hmm. They are deeply connected in this character. And I think the show is doing a fantastic job of portraying that. What I found to be the sort of compelling backbeat to that turn was uh, Tom. And, you know, before we get into it, maybe I'll just give you a teaser because I know we like to do a little bit of like, here's what happened in this episode. You know, sure. I, I just just to run it down. But I think that, you know, last week I, I strapped on my waiters and I went under the bridge and I had a little conversation, not Red Hot Chili Pepper style, more like uh, Aesop. <laughs> had a chat with a concern troll. Right. And yeah. I think the thing that I that I want to say is about the, about where succession is going and what it means, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'd like to say here officially on this podcast, something that everybody who listens already knows, which is Jesse Armstrong is smarter than us and is very much in control of the show. and has an enchanted shield that reflects the concerned trolls powers back to him, thus negating him. Is that a Zelda the thing? Reason, I, I, I was thinking it might be. Yeah. Um, I'm fishing for something like that. But the reason I say that is. Up to now, I think I, along with a lot of the audience, was looking at the cast of characters, the pantheon of succession characters, and thinking, this is interesting because we have all of these Roys who are all aliens, essentially, and buffoons in equal measure. And then we have Greg, who is more or less a buffoon. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us were watching Greg being like, well, when is he going to flip? When is he going to turn? He's, you know, if you were going to absolutely just, um, you know, 200,000 foot it from the pilot. Oh, he's our point of view character because he's new to this family. And so he's sort of on the outs. And that's actually a mis been a misdirection. Does he speak up for the, you know, the moral heart of America, uh, or at least of people in America who liked Hamilton, but really liked Hamilton when he says that Connor Roy should not be anointed president? <laughs> yes. But during all this time, one thing that I definitely took my eye off of, and I feel like the audience maybe did as well, is that not everyone in the inner circle was born to it. And the person who really wasn't born to it is Tom, who, from everything we know, is just kind of a nice guy from Minnesota. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was Wisconsin, but yeah, like or, a, just a Midwest. Midwest farm boy. Yeah, right. Flyover guys like us. What's the diff, <laughs> right? Apologies to everyone in the heartland of America for that. But Tom isn't born to this. Tom doesn't fit into this. And Tom all of a sudden becomes the linchpin to, I think, unlocking not only the season, but to understanding the perspective that the audience has to maintain vis-a-vis -vis the Royce. And I just thought that was so expertly and brilliantly done. And it helps that you have Matthew McFadden, who is one of the best actors of his generation, probably, sure. in that role. So triumphant episode top to bottom, withering, brilliant, funny, insightful, incredibly, uncomfortably, neck-itchingly zeitgeisty. But more than anything else, like a deeply human episode, I think, mostly because of Matthew McFadden and what Jesse Armstrong and his writers are doing with Tom. Yeah. So the zeitgeist thing was was my only crumbs for the troll that I had this week. And it really mm. isn't a concern troll thing as much as it is an observation, which okay. is essentially, did you find the uh, horse trading, almost mm. literally, that going on in, in the hotel suite to be... Not unlike Kendall's engagement with Twitter earlier in the season, where that was kind of liberal Twitter's like uh, sleep paralysis demon coming to life and be like, this is, you know, this idea of all these Maggie Haberman articles that you've been reading about people yeah. meeting in a room and making these awful decisions about the, the fate of the country. Did that sort of feel almost so on the nose that it felt untrue in a, in a, in a wire uh -huh. season five? I Wait, you guys thought this is how newspapers worked kind of way? I totally, totally appreciate that. Fire Season 5, though, was very accurate about how serial killers work. Sure. Right? And, and the investigation <laughs> of them. So let's sure. never forget that. Um, I'm glad you asked that question. Happy to once again lift my kind of made-up Zelda shield and say no. Yeah, I, thought I, I just thought I would, I would throw it out there for the sake of conversation. No, I think it's worth asking. And um, I think no for two reasons. Reason number one was that, um, you know, one, it, it, this has been something the show has been criticized for and lauded for, which is portraying the ultra, ultra, ultra rich as completely siloed from reality. Mm -hmm. This goes all the way back to the, um, you know, the, the New Yorker profile where Jesse Armstrong is like, 
we're not going to do COVID because it didn't matter to them anyway, to the, to the ultra rich, it didn't affect them. And the show has done a very good job of that. And it was interesting looking back in hindsight after this episode to, to, to sort of interrogate my own interactions with those scenes. And really, they're, they've been pretty benign and passive. Like, well, of course, there are yachts where you can't wear shoes or else you'll mess up the teak. Like, and that's where they're spending all their time. Sure. Like, I, I've under, I understand that objectively, that, that's, that there is a tier beyond the tier that people are spending every day in. And that's just, you know, that, that's just part of uh, what you buy the ticket for when you enter the capitalism rodeo. Sure. What was different about this and the way it was portrayed was that it was this, honestly, for me, chill-inducing reminder that these people, these characters and their analogs in the real world, are fiddling away on their yachts and in their mega skyscrapers. Well, literally we burn. Mm -hmm. It is not, we, you know, we're sort of inured to it in the fictional sense, but oh no, this is actually our lives and our futures and our children's futures being, um, you know, thrown against the wall, like dice in some back alley like that. That is actually what this is. And I found that really brilliantly done. The flip side of it is, and I want to get your thoughts on this too, of course, because you're the one that has been saying this, um, or at least has suggested this, which are the many similarities between Succession and Veep. Not just that they're both on HBO and there's definitely some shared DNA from mm -hmm. British comedy writer Hive, right? And also just the sort of savagery with which British writers of a yeah, certain Yeah, the Armstrong Iannucci school, yeah, right. What they have to say about America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what I thought was just incredible about this was, yeah, the jokes in this episode, the burns, the observations, I mean, as good as any, and as certainly as funny as anything on a comedy written by Iannucci or, or any, anyone else from that school. But the thing about Veep is that it was essentially an absurdist comedy being like, all of this is worth nothing. This is all just, it's nothing. You know, it's all just curses and sweat and backstabbing for a poison chalice. And mm -hmm. that's kind of funny. The difference between the comedy and the drama is that the stakes in this just felt really, really, really deeply felt and uncomfortable. And it was played off of Shiv's face. And I thought that Sarah Snook did a great job in the episode where you feel how slippery the slope is from helping your family to hobnobbing and bullshitting uh, at a cocktail party to having to smile in a photograph next to an actual fascist. Yeah. And it was it was powerful. Her hubris getting her hubris getting deflated at the end where she even in the final moments is like, yeah. well my my vote counts for more because yes. I understand this scenario and and she just gets outplayed by Roman essentially in that moment. And and how about the ultimate I mean, she she makes a big deal this episode about how, you know, dad you humiliated me mm -hmm. in the previous episode. I'm not sure there's any humiliation deeper than agreeing to be photographed next to a fascist, but one person removed from the fascist and her father just saying, you win, Pinky. Yeah, right. What did she win? I'm right. sorry? Right. What did she win? It, 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 was, it was weirdly devastating, this episode, to me in a way that I think emotionally succession doesn't always reach. I, 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 can, I, I felt in previous episodes empathy for the characters, which is a testament to the writing and the, certainly the performances, but this is the one that kind of reached in and kind of kind of jiggled me up a little bit. Yeah, and it's interesting that you should say that because this is an ep episode largely absent of Kendall in so much as he did not participate in the central family mm -hmm. drama of the week. You know, he is on the periphery. Uh, you know, he has his Department of Justice meeting. He uh, fires his lawyer, gives a couple of like buzzword speeches, and then has that incredible scene with Tom. But for the most Hall part... Hall of Fame scene is like FaceTiming into this episode for for a lot of it. It's really, I think, I wonder whether or not the reason why it shook you was because it got dumped on the different kids this time. You know, the the sort of reversal of fortune hit Shiv harder because Kendall wasn't there to take a couple of the bullets. I, I think it was partly that. I, I think Kendall, I mean, look, that, that note is something the show hits really well. And... I, I want to spend some time talking about that Tom and Kendall scene so we can circle back to it because I think it's, you know, yeah. that goes on the highlight reel for the series. Yeah. Um, but I have some the notes. Blo <laughs> the blow that Tom lands on Kendall, you know, mm -hmm. it's incredible how many variations on the you have detonated my heart face Jeremy Strong has. Like you'd think that maybe he would have used them all in the first two seasons, but yeah. nope, no, that that's still going. I don't think it was so much that. I do think that there was, 
it's one thing to watch the gods mess around on Mount Olympus, right? Like if you're reading mythology or something, they're always like, oh, they're playing tricks on each other and they're always stealing each other's best cattle for sacrifice, whatever. I read a lot of Greek myths with my children, sorry. The, it's, it hits different when the capricious gods come down from the mountain, fuck everything up, mm-hmm. and then climb back up the mountain. You know, and, and that feeling, there was something very intense for me about the contempt as it got closer to the surface of the earth where we live, even though obviously it's a fictional show, you know, but it, it, it was a really fascinating, maybe, the, maybe, this, is, maybe the, this is the first time I've correctly used the term heat check, but for someone like Roman, where we're like, oh, we like Roman. How great. And then you realize that, you know, he would harvest us all for our livers if his father needed a liver. Like it's right. not it's not a thing for him. So really, I mean, we've we've pretty much synopsized this episode but without even trying, but it basically revolves around the picking of the next president after the reason has announced that he's not going to run again. And by the end of the episode, Edgelord Roman Roy kind of emerges and convinces his father to back a character named Jared Mankin who's played by Justin Kirk, and I have a lot to say about this performance. Me and too. he plays him as this kind of Peter Thiel, Jared Kushner, Trump hybrid. Matt Gates kind yeah, of. Yeah, like populism with a 4chan sense of humor, creeping racism, nationalism. And he gets picked for his box office potential more than anything else over like a Pensian VP and a, a centrist Republican played by Yul Vasquez, who's an actor I like a lot. And... um. You know, he's telegenic and he's willing to say the quiet racist part loud and it doesn't hurt that Roman wants to fuck him. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I mean, whether or not that is explicit in the script, it's definitely explicit in the way that Kirk and Kieran Culkin decided to play the scenes that they had together. And they had more sexual chemistry than almost any other pairing. It was incredible. Also... (laughs) I want to know who gave Kieran Culkin the direction or was it just actor generated where he's like, when I begin this conversation, I'm just going to be moisturizing my hands furiously. Yeah. While Justin Kirk's like, I push boundaries. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty sexy stuff. I mean, I think, again, if you take a step back, one of the best things about the show is a slightly outsider sensibility and perspective on the American political culture. And I, I, I don't say that because there aren't Americans who see, see the game for what it is. But I think it's worth remembering that the Murdoch family, who, who are obviously in deep inspiration, I mean, to us personally with our podcast, for Virgin sure. Empire, but yeah. certainly for the show, are Australian and came here and saw the vulnerabilities of this country and ripped them to shreds and took full advantage of them. There's a certain canniness that is at the root of the satire that makes it land. And particular or not just the satire, just the depiction. And what I mean here is is the understanding that the Logan Roy Rupert Murdochs of the world don't exist in an arena where morality matters or politics matter. They are newspaper men, they're media men, they are spectacle, they're PT Barnums. And the reason Logan stays alive is because he's not hiding behind um, hashtag trending topics like Kendall is to try to, to try to build a tiny, tiny sputtering campfire of relevance. He understands that the show will go on regardless mm-hmm. of whether he's the star of it or not. And the way you keep the show going is you get fucking bigger elephants or elephants that will k- literally kill people or at least <laughs> round them into camps. You know, there is no hesitation on his part to make what is obviously the better play for the future of his television channel. And that's all that it that's all that matters. That's all that it comes down to. And I love how relatively uncomplicated that decision was for Logan Roy. And it was so well played by Brian Cox, who has pendulum has swung all the way back, yeah. back in the saddle. Yeah, he's doing he's great. Absolutely. The UTI Apex is Predator. all cleared up. Yeah. <laughs> all that ocean spray he downed between the episodes, just cleaned it all out, cleaned out the scepter. Yeah, I mean, that that's what makes sense and roman's relentless hounding of shiv for her you know her failures as a political operative yeah it's it's all static and chatter like it always is between them but he does draw blood because essentially i think what he is identifying is that she did that because she thought it mattered Mm -hmm. he uses that mocking voice but that is true i think she kind of on some level was like i'm not Oh, I'm going I to be important. absolutely 100% think that 
Shiv thinks she's walking into that meeting being like, I am the expert in the room. I'm the smartest person in the room and they're going to defer to my knowledge here. And yes, if I can, if right. I can get away with it, I might just push us blue here, you know, and, and there would be a moment where, and there she says, she's like, I think we should go Dems and it winds up slingshotting all the way back around. So it's not blue. It's the reddest of reds, you know? It's yeah. it's she thinks that she can go Salgado or getting him to back up Democrat, and it winds up being oh no we're we're gonna go for this this maniac. It, it's incredible. She walks into this room with her father, being like, "You should listen to me because I once had a consulting gig for a clown." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Clowns don't own the fucking circus." Right. You know what I mean? Clowns work for the circus, and you, you can always find more clowns. That that is baked into the episode it's baked into the, the the show's understanding of american politics at this moment which i find you know disturbingly disturbingly accurate and i, I just it's the little touches in the episode you know like, like calling the vice president dave yeah yeah well i mean the characterizations are so perfect sometimes when you're watching in the moment the show can feel like this batting practice of jokes coming at you and it's just like this perfect pitch after perfect pitch after mm-hmm. perfect pitch then you kind of think back and it's like they essentially you can tell by the stunt casting sort of you can tell that like it's Justin Kirk is is the important person to keep your eye on at the beginning of the episode but even the way that they describe the vice president as having wet lips or going vegetarian and waiting so there for 10 minutes all of those things accumulate you're like this guy's gonna lose this guy's gonna lose and then at, when they do that scene in the dinner, the sort of dining area, and like that's where the Plato, Plato, read Plato part happens with with uh, Mencken. Um, I keep calling him Mencken, like H. L. Mencken. I, I think it, I don't know why. What, is it Mencken? I think it's Mencken. Yeah, but it has. There has to be some intentionality there. That is not exactly. A, that doesn't trip lightly off the tongue. Sure. Uh, in any case. I, I just found that the way it, the economy with which the show kind of characterizes bit players and then moves on very quickly, this felt like it had a lot more momentum. I was I I, I realized oh, yeah. how ready I was for the shareholder meeting and the corporate takeover part of the show to be like great in the in the rearview mirror. Let's since you mentioned Justin Kirk, let's just briefly talk about the embarrassment of riches here at this the table ridiculous. because the the thing that Succession has has conquered is that it exists in the perfect Venn diagram center of something that you know the first piece I ever wrote for Grandland, the HBO recycling project, where mm-hmm. like all their great actors appear in all of their shows. So they've got that going for them. And then on top of that, so that's why you get, you know, Stephen Root is just on this show now. And right. Hope Davis for four scenes, you know. And this other thing that we were talking about, and maybe we were overly crediting Frank Rich for this, maybe it's not just him, but I couldn't help but wonder, it's like the, this this direct pipeline to the New York theater royalty. Yeah. And so stepping in as Vice President Dave is Reed Bernie, recent Tony winner, who's just a genius in everything he does and knows exactly how to be an entirely fully realized person, even if he's never on the show again. You know, that is something that you cannot teach. And it is something you definitely can't just walk out to Hollywood and buy. Mm-hmm. And then you go down the line it, of those people in that room. Yeah, Stephen Root is there sort of conducting. You have Reed Bernie. You have Yul Vasquez, Silver Fox Yul Vasquez, by yeah. the way, not with the dyed job he had in Russian Doll. Another great New York theater actor who's having a moment. He was in Russian Doll. He's going to be in the upcoming um, Apple show Severance. Phenomenal actor and brings a gravity to just those few scenes. You get it. You understand why Shiv's fighting for him. You would love to see more of him, or maybe we'll never see him again. And then Justin Kirk, who I want to clear out and let you talk about this. I I really like him as a performer, but I also find him fascinating because he's so versatile. He can do comedy, he can do drama, but I feel like very often people don't know what to do with him. Like he, he works constantly. And when I was casting Briarpatch, for example, casting director, talk about him reverential like reverentially they worship him for his you know apparently a good guy but also just so talented but they're always like well what how can we fit him into this box because he doesn't always fit and yeah then, he's got leading oh, man looks has, yeah. right he's got leading man looks and he's got maybe a lizard's heart you know when you when you actually like watch the way he has such a facility with i mean yes. honestly chillingly a facility with moving through that 
the language and the vocabulary of sort of this neo-fascist. It's it's yep. irony, but it's not. And I'm borrowing from Franco, but also from Thomas Aquinas. And he's just like turret gunning through this stuff. Yet he has a kind of um, I don't know, a sweetness to him. Like if you, I mean, it's it was it was kind of t- speaking of the HBO, you know, being in the HBO Pro League. It's kind of wild to watch the guy from Angels in America do this, you know? And it speaks to his range, even though there is a character's actor. Like, if you cast Justin Kirk, you're going to get this specific kind of, like, wise wise acre. But, you know, he is the New New York wise-ass, you know, that Logan was referring to a little while ago. It was like, he has that kind of New York theater... uh, intellectual heft to the way he he does no matter what the genre he's working in you know one thing that is that is a constant with the great british actors is that they are just and it always it never ceases to dazzle they just seem so competent with both comedy and drama and Stephen root is a great example of that mm-hmm. someone who people couldn't quite figure out why he was so great or what to do with him for a bunch of years because well he was the funniest thing on news radio but he's also a brilliant actor and then you see him on boardwalk empire and you see him being able to do both on on barry so of course he fits in here. Of course he can. It's not a thing for him. It's what he does. Justin Kirk, Angels in America, but also Animal Practice, the sure. short-lived NBC sitcom where he had to share screen with a with a monkey. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the kind of facility that you want when you're giving voice to a, a show that also moves so deftly between those worlds. And also it's, the other thing about him, he he's capturing that kind of like that you know dark TikTok parlor energy but with a sort of puckish glint in his eye, but he's 52, so he has yeah. the heft. You know what I mean? I, it's just, I, it's, a, it's a great casting. It's a great character. He plays the DA on Perry Mason, on the HBO, the reboot oh, yeah. with Perry Mason with uh, Matthew Reese. In that show, on this show, it's, it's interesting because you can visualize him as Kendall. You could see him mm-hmm. as Kendall. You could see him as the Perry Mason character on Perry Mason. Like You could see him doing these lead roles, and there's almost like an energy to his supporting work that has lead actor charisma but is is reduced playing time and I, I i would love to see him carry his own show i mean i i know he's done it before but what do you think about while we're talking about the contenders in this mm-hmm. uh in this gross room where this gross room of men who lift greg on their shoulders like he's the stanley cup um the other uh the other would be elephant in the room full of gop elephants is is connor yeah and i mean god what what must it be like to write and make a show where like your last line of defense is always Alan Ruck. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, not that they're ever in doubt of what to do with a scene, but they could always just be like, let's just, let's just toss it to Connor for, for a line. Sure. Or for that, that Steven Root scene with him and Justine Loop. So good. The moment when it's plausible, just briefly in yeah. the hotel suite. Where they're entertaining where it's plausible. It. Yeah. How great was that moment? Because... I, as a, you know, maybe the most skeptical audience member in, in, in the, in the yeah, that's my tier of audience where I'm the most skeptical of almost anything any show does, even things that I love, even the ones that I love. I was like, yeah, I could see them doing this. I could see them just making this turn and pulling it off. Did, did you believe that there was any, mo- for a moment that they were going to do this? There's a, there was a second, because I do find that while I adore Alan Ruck, as a performer and I adore Connor as a character, he is the the third leg a little bit here. You know what I mean? Like everybody yeah. has a purpose on this show right now and Connor's purpose is to come in and and say, oh, we had to fly what was it, scheduled? Is that what it was coming to say? Instead of a PJ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and he and Willa just kind of being um the last two people on the guest list for every party that they're going to with the Roy's. Willa playwriting in the notes app. Yeah. <laughs> what nice does he call her? My Mary Todd? What does he say? <laughs> um, there was a moment where I was like, are they really going to do this? But uh, I was thrilled and terrified to see where they took it. And and I think that the one of the highlights of the season so far for me was definitely that bathroom scene that we referred to between Roman and yeah. uh, Jared, where, yeah, like you mentioned, the choice that Culkin makes to be moisturizing his hands while the two of them dressed identically with identical uh haircuts just kind of make fuck eyes at one another while talking about fascism i i mean isn't it interesting that the show is is nudging this idea forward which is 
Kendall and Siobhan, who are obviously like the clubhouse leaders for people who who are handicapping the show sure. like it's some sort of sporting event. Not are that being we would exposed, ever do that. Yeah. Never. Not us. Uh, are being exposed week after week, not just as ill-informed or ill-suited to the time, but really fighting the wrong wars, like fighting yesterday's wars. And there's something that is emerging. I mean, it's always been there, but at least it's emerging into my consciousness and I think to the main stage of the show that Roman really is this is made for this particular moment. There's a, he says, such a dark and toxic stew of just absolute naked emotional hurt, longing, and neediness that is subsumed into this collection of like holy, smarter than thou, clever, nothing fucking matters, nihilistic handticks. You know, it's yes, it, it, he is Twitter, right? He is social media made flesh in a way. But so of course he can navigate this. He's moment. doing the same thing Kendall's doing. He's just using the complete opposite terms. Kendall's doing, you know, resistance Twitter, me too. Right. You know, like as Stewie says, standing on a rainbow box and screaming "Time's up," and fucking Romans like moving the Overton window and and mocking everything Shiv says in a like, "Oh, you actually care? All you're doing is doing Route but, One." But in that bathroom, Roman actually pitches a plausible version of a way yes. forward for that company in a way that Kendall can't because Kendall's just like buying Walter and you know rolling rolling up like different verticals. Roman knows what he's got and he knows where it should go. Exactly. The way, I mean, we are, we are David Simon making season five of The Wire able to talk about the mistakes made in media v. new media over the last decade, right? And fundamentally, where a lot of shit went wrong was old media was always going to be old media. And new media was like, we could try some new stuff, but maybe we still want to do fact checking and we'll kind of be like the old ways of doing it. And then old media bought new media and was like, well, just be like more like us, and it all collapsed. And then right. there were a couple people who were like, no, it's just going to be teens dancing for 10 seconds. And also <laughs> a little sprinkling of fascism. Like, that's right. actually what this is, so stop fucking pretending that you're going to win a Pulitzer. You know what I mean? And right. Roman is that. Roman does not have the... He shouldn't necessarily be lauded for his complete lack of sensitivity or morals, but he certainly is meeting the moment uh, yeah. in a way that suits both the company and more directly his father who is the oldest person well i see the oldest person on the show he's certainly the oldest person he's the the eminence grease of the roy family but because he is just as you know we said before he's an apex predator and that type of predation doesn't go out of style what did you think of the carry development of of him having a a rumored affair with his assistant it was very interesting it was very it was very succession where subplots can sometimes just emerge fully formed from the back room. Like there wasn't a lot of handholding with this because this was not no. Um, this wasn't uh, Jess or or what's her name uh, Dagmar Domenichik's character. Carolina. I'm blanking it. Carolina. Like it's not someone who's been there the whole time. This is someone who, as far as I know, and I may not be the most careful watcher of the show, but I don't remember seeing her. I believe she is a recent addition. I think she is a this season edition, but I, I, I can't right. guarantee that. But yeah. So I, I kind of like it when things hide in plain sight. And it plays into something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is that the rhythm the show seems to work best in is one in which Logan is generally opaque. Mm -hmm. And what happens when he closes the doors, we don't know about because it's better when we're all like with the kids themselves scrabbling for crumbs to drop from the throne. What it means for the show I, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you. I mean, it's it's always a weird like it was a weird swing when she had something to say to the sitting vice president. Yeah, you know? I think everybody in the room felt that way. You know, when he points at her, right. when she gives him the eyes, when Roman's making his pitch for Jared. Uh, I imagine we'll see more of Jared as the season goes on, and I'm I'm very interested in seeing ATN and the Roy family in action. You know, now that they are kind of back doing what they did to build this empire, which is sort of maneuvering and manipulating the American political system and the temperature of the country yeah. to sell fucking bedpans. The, I mean, the show, the ATN of it has kind of been a, on the, on the slow boil. Yeah. With the it's, exception of Ravenwood, it, we have not done a lot of like, what is, what are the mechanics of ATN? It, 
And also, how important is it to the Empire? And I thought this episode did a pretty, not just brilliant, but efficient job of communicating it. I mean, Roman said that the audience, much like its real world uh, analog Fox News, the audience is primarily the coveted demographic known as almost deads. Mm -hmm. But it remains like the most powerful or most immediate lever to exact institutional power in this country. And so the fact that everyone has now returned to that as the centerpiece, as the government is, you know, although unclear where the case stands, while the government is gunning for them, they can gun right back and potentially blow the government out of the water. It's an interesting place to go. It's also the kind of place that I don't think the show, I think the show was smart not to begin here. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's no version of this show with Adam McKay involved and from the beginning that wasn't going to do this. Sure. I think this is what motivated him to want to make a show like this, but even probably even before Jesse Armstrong got involved and created it and shaped it, it feels appropriate to end up here now that we trust them and we know what they're doing. And we've established the other, other things that the family does or has, has its paws in. Yeah. I mean, I am happiest when I feel like the show is deviating furthest from its original proposition. You know, this idea of which one of these kids is going to succeed Logan, we will eventually answer that question. There's so much fun shit we could get into on the way there. Having Mm -hmm. a kind of repeating cycle of Kendall trying and failing to usurp his father. I don't know what Jeremy Strong does if he's not doing that. I'm very curious to find out. He is obviously, I think, one of the two or three best actors on television right now, if not the best. So I want him to be busy on this show. But mm-hmm. uh, it was interesting to see him marginalized. I, I often, you know, I, I, often the show is compared to billions, or billions is compared to Succession. Billions, despite the billion subplots it had, you know, for the most part over the six seasons it's been on, or seven seasons it's been on, has been pretty much obsessed with this Axe versus Chuck, like who will get who thing, mm-hmm. you know. And ultimately, Damian Lewis left the show, as as people know from reading the news. Even if you're not reading the show, watching the show. Damien Lewis is leaving the show, and I think that that solved its problem for it. I don't know that yeah. Succession will ever experience an, an absence like that, but I, I really would love to see them knee-deep in a presidential election. That, that, that seems really fucking entertaining. We should talk a little bit about the Kendall stuff, though. Yeah. Did, you, did you have one more point you wanted to make? No, I wanted to pivot to the Kendall stuff. It's like, it's like you're reading my mind. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, 
tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Well, is that is that it for Sana Lathan? Pretty, pretty, pretty big actress. Just we're gonna get two scenes. Seems like it. I, I, one thing that I think that we've learned. Well, let me say this: during the long national nightmare when Succession was not in our lives, we filled the vacuum as best we could, and one of the only ways that we could was by grabbing any anything that fell from the royal plate and uh, and 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 spending weeks, days, or weeks obsessing over it. I think one thing we've learned is that Succession has a very, very stacked pre-existing cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a stacked cast of actors who are no longer in the main cast who could be called upon uh, when you need a Marsha or you need a Stewie. As you said already, Hope Davis is just, she's probably just hanging out on set. She's got COVID compliance. She's a veil. Um, When we read Sanaa Lathan, Adrian Brody, the still as yet unseen Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. I think some of us were like either thinking they are joining the show right. as equals to the others, or we were like, oh, this is like Margot Martindale in the season of Justified. Like they, here come the big bads. The big bads for the, for the season. season, for sure. Not the case. No. These were guest Villa- arcs. Yeah, right. Like very traditional. You know, and they are just people who get more headlines and probably get paid more than your Reed Bernies, your Stephen Roots, or your Mark Lynn Baker, by the way, speaking of New York theater guys, but right. will always be perfect strangers to people of a certain generation. I think that's where we're at. So maybe we just need to recalibrate our own thinking. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I, I think I had the part. same thing where I was like, where's the Peter Riegert episode? <laughs> I don't think we're going to get it. <laughs> people just want to be on this show. Yeah. You know, the... If it wasn't such an excellent show and wonderfully written and also a lot of actors, I don't know the particulars of these actors, but a lot of actors live in New York and are thrilled to be a part of a show where they don't have to travel. This is another place where, you know, the COVID question can come into it, where it's just like, yeah, I'd love to work for four days. I haven't worked in four months. You know what I mean? So I'm available for this part. I think the other thing to think of is that if it's a good experience for everyone, they're in play now. They're in play. You know, right. so Lisa could come back Adri- as the lawyer for somebody else or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And Adrian Brody will be on the show again. But I think it seems pretty clear that he is not a major plot driver of the season. It certainly doesn't seem like it unless he's going to, you know, come roaring back with a takeover bit of his own. The Kendall stuff, it, it was interesting because maybe this speaks to your point about being eager to get the shareholder stuff off. Like, I, I'm once they're done with the banter. I'm not as interested, and to its credit, I don't think the show is that interested in this either. I'm not particularly interested in the nitty gritty of the government's case. No, me neither. And so tracking where it stands isn't the best place for the show to hang out in. So I can I can I just do a little bit of like um, yeah, be vulnerable here for with you for a second. Oh, always. Uh, I've had a a big birthday. Very, (laughs) very close watcher of this show. Mm -hmm. So. Are the documents in question in this episode the ones Greg gave him? Does he have them? Like I'm, so my, I'm a little unclear about some of that stuff. My takeaway from this was is that there are, and I'm, I'm sorry to complicate, muddy the waters further. When they say documents, there's two different document right. collections. One is the Greg Kendall documents. Which, which were like are the, bu- the cruise the ship shell, murder docs, yeah. Which as at least suggested by this episode, are not as damning as um, the press conference would have had you believe. Mm-hmm. The second piece, and maybe this is a comment on the first, is that when they agreed to cooperate, Waystar Royco unleashed the floodgates of documents and is basically drowning the government in paper. And some of it is maybe damning, some of it is maybe exculpatory, and some of it is just confusing. And that's what those lawyers are going through every minute to find something that suits their case, suits their interests. And it it seems like, and this is sort of what I got from some of what Kendall was saying, they're just they're just flooding the zone mm-hmm. and confusing everything with and discovery, everything. yeah, and like the and, doc- and, and slowing everything down, yeah. Right. Okay. That's that's good to know. I, um, I, I think the the other takeaway, and I loved the scene where she's like, "Do you think you're smarter than me?" Like, mm-hmm. this show is what these moments when 
they are these untouchable characters are touched when they are smacked in the snout like a like a badly behaving dog in an 80s movie before people understood how to treat dogs um, <laughs> or would allow dogs to be treated like that way on, that way on the screen. Those are the powerful moments, right? Uh-huh. Where it's just like, oh, I'm going to have to start thinking of the toilet as my friend. <laughs> like this, there is another way of being here. Yeah. You know, the uh, other than that, I mean, the, the one thing I wanted to re- discuss regarding Kendall and this gets back to Tom mm. is the diner scene, which I thought was... Oh, well, wait, before we do diner, I just have to ask you one thing. Yeah. This is going to be underreported because I, I thought it was going a different direction when Kendall, when he's like, we're going to fire Lisa and he's just like, he's, yeah, he's, he's drinking bourbon or whatever it is, like it's Powerade. So I'm like, okay, so that's intentional. He's, he's slipping a little bit in that way. But am I wrong? He was multitasking. He's also planning a 40th birthday party. Yes. I believe that that is the subject of the next episode. Can't wait. This yeah. in some ways, what, what does he call it? He, he, he says, uh, who does he say? Ask is, is are these people going to come to his antibiotic party? Yeah, it's like AI meets like Bacchanal, like Roman Bacchanal. Carthage. Yeah, yeah I, Carthage. I guess if it's if it's next week's episode, I'll save it because I did want to ask what similarities you felt between uh, yourself, who recently oh, yeah. celebrated a birthday, and um, and Kendall in this episode. But we can but we can circle back. Let's get to the diner. Yeah. Um, two characters and two actors who can certainly do. Uh, font size 26, you know, announcements with their, with their performances, like they can be big and they can fill up a screen and then they're both playing it. So, so quiet appropriately for a clandestine meeting in a diner. But the moment where Tom does his ordering and, uh, mm-hmm. Jeremy Strong's way of sit, like, re- like taking that information in and then not even making eye contact with contact with the waitress and saying, I'm just going to watch him. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing. And then that scene just rolls from there. They're like, I, it's it, also, I, I got to say, when I was talking before about how the show kind of blindsided me with a reminder that Tom is immortal, mm-hmm. um, not immortal, he is a mortal person. Um, only Tom and Greg eat the diner food. Right. Kendall would fucking never, you know, right. in the same way that like, you know, again, from my daughter's Greek myths book, you know, when Persephone is stolen by Hades, mm-hmm. Lord of the Undead, One and of my the favorites. Underworld. Yeah. And... And uh, her mother, Demeter, comes to rescue her. And Hades like, nah, she can't leave because she ate six pomegranate seeds. So she has mm-hmm. to stay here for six months of the year. And that's why we have winter. Uh-huh. That was doused in Bisquick and maple syrup. Those were pomegranate seeds, man. Did you like when Tom tells Greg, you have to eat that omelet like it's Afghanistan? You take, take some territory and then move out? <laughs> I just feel like we are not worthy to have a show <laughs> that has space for that. Yeah, you know what I, I mean. Speaking of which, we're gonna I'm gonna clear out for you about the the wine in a, in a minute. But yeah, the Tom Greg scene was just incredible, <laughs> and the moment where Greg, t- t- where sorry, the Tom and Kendall scene was just incredible. Uh, both diner scenes were great, but yes, yeah. the Kendall scene was. And the the moment where Kendall thinks he's got another gotcha moment where he's taking pictures of of Tom meeting him so that he could blackmail him with it, and he's just like, "Who are you blackmailing?" You know, do you think you, you, you played your card, these guys skated and now they're picking the next president. So you think you're intimidating me by having a gotcha moment on your iPhone? Like you have nothing. And, you know, we've seen Kendall over the course of, uh, the season lose allies left and right. Increasingly, you know, no Lisa now sort of had his family members on side for half of an episode now gone. Rava gone. Haven't seen Naomi in a while. When he's in that Virginia parking lot, he's by himself, you know, and I, I don't know what happens with Kendall when he's on his own. Usually nothing good. Um, no. it, it, usually nothing good he at all. He usually goes and checks out the, some, that some I, wolf art. <laughs> exactly. I think um, I, I can't get over the power of the performances in that scene because it, there was something, I, I, I really like the way you, you, you framed it because you're talking about how they can they, get, they don't need a megaphone to project these characters. They understand them on such like a, a molecular level. But what was so awesome about the two of them together in that close, tight, very unsuccession-like space was that the dial got turned all the way down, mm-hmm. you know, and they still under... Look, 
I, I, I think good acting in general is a magic trick, but I have to feel like if you were on set that day, it was a little bit like a seance or something, like these two people just channeling other human beings that they can also be sometimes right. in everything that they do. I mean, the way the camera knew, because they've worked with McFadden for a while, to like have a camera going on his hands, you know, and the silverware. Yeah. And he is good enough at this to not crack uh, the character is good enough to not crack and show weakness because he's a veteran of business negotiations or whatever. But the actor is so skilled to, to to let us see the, as Kendall put it, hairline fractures running through every fiber of his being. Mm-hmm. What does he say? I've I've read the prison blogs. <laughs> <laughs> All the details. Yeah. That, that's the other enjoyment level for me on the show is you just have to feel like the writers must have had so much fun Googling this stuff. And just pouring it into this wonderful vessel that is the show they make with all these details that are actually additive. They're not just funny asides. They're additive to our understanding of the psychological state. They of also the just do like a little like the, 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 the point right after Tom orders his food and Kendall's like, yeah, I'm just going to watch him. There's this mm-hmm. brief moment, which is actually very true to the like immediate post ordering moment in a lunch mm-hmm. or dinner mm-hmm. where you're like, mm-hmm. So what do I do with my hands now? Because for like the last five minutes, all we've been talking about is like what we're going to eat and what we're going to order and do you want to split something? And then you put the menu down and you're just kind of like, okay, so like, what are we doing here? Small aside, this is the least bad thing that has happened because of the global pandemic that has taken untold number of lives and upended our existence. But the QR code menu <laughs> thing is such yeah. an abomination. Yeah, are you getting a it signal has- here? Yeah. It has also broken the social contract. Right. Like, we put our phones point, away. Yeah. All of the things that we do in public are absurd, including like wearing clothes or whatever. Like all of this is made up. But you can't just take them away and expect us to function. And one of them is, yes, you sit down at the table and you have sort of awkward, oh, haha, well, good to see you, whatever. But you have yeah, no phones. And then the nice thing that eases you in to your time together is there something to do? Yes. There's something to hold in your hands, look away, collect yourself, whatever, look at the menu, immediate conversation starter. But now, what the fuck? Yeah. What are we doing? And generally, Chris, I forget. So you're talking and you're doing that small talk, but you're not doing the big talk you want to have yet because- Let's talk about COVID for 10 minutes. The yeah, food, right. The food's not here. <laughs> right. And then the waitress comes and she's like, hey guys. And you're like, hey, how are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? Can I have some- me- Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Got it. I've, I anyway. have found in my dining experiences recently, I'm just desperately trying to slow the process down because there's something about the QR mm. code. Because there was, used to be like this theater where it's like, okay, I can mm-hmm. signal publicly that I have now completed my reading of the menu and I'm ready to order. Yes. But with the phone, I actually, just like everything else I do on my phone, just get distracted where I'm like halfway through starters and then like I'm like, think i'll check twitter <laughs> you know, like, i'm such a fucking idiot that i can't even get through a menu and then i'm like do but, i do i say hey we're ready like what well, you can't signal that you've put the menu down you can't put it down because then if you put your phone down and then the waitress comes over and it's like, oh, like okay let me on. pick my phone up again oh no i guess i'm wearing a mask well, it's not recognizing my face yeah i gotta put in a i mean this is a disaster we have to do better people um, let me get to this final segment here really quick w- wait before you do last thing on this uh I think it's worth noting with the the Tom and Kendall stuff is that Tom has no options. It is, there's genuine pathos here. This really is awful. Yeah. And that walk back into the hotel where he's looking over his shoulder and he sees Greg. I mean, if this were a lesser show, if this was a, uh, no offense, if this was like a lesser AMC drama from 2014, I'd be like, wow, Tom's going to go kill himself. Right. Like this is being shot like that. This isn't <laughs> right. that show. This is McBainy, yeah. which makes it more interesting. But yeah. there's something else going on here. His only defense to Kendall in those moments, and Kendall, regardless of his stature, is still the alpha because he is still an untouchable billionaire, basically. And sure. Tom still sees him as such. Is that Tom keeps saying, "Well, I fell in love with your sister. I fell in love with your sister." And every time he says a variation of that, Kendall's like, "Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Right, sure, but." <laughs> it is such it is such a brutal indictment of human emotion i love when but it also like, isn't wrong because of their scenes together the the shiv and tom scenes yeah and let's talk about the shiv and tom scene now you know typically now in modern nba it's generally agreed upon that the ball finds energy you know that getting everybody involved making sure everybody gets a shot make everybody gets a touch 
is the way to go. And I, I think that that applies to podcasts as well. Oh. But right now we're going to go back to the late 90s. And we're clearing out for number three at the top of the key. Everybody's we're going spreading. ISO? Yeah. Talk to me about some biodynamic German wine. Well, I, I want to begin here. Thank you, first of all. Right. Thank you. Um, this was the most important scene in the episode. Season, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Without <laughs> like, question. Yeah. Certainly in this vintage. Um, Matthew McFadden's hands deserve an award. Because I don't know how he can make his hands an extension of the performance he's giving, but the yeah. way they kind of just worry over the bottles, you know, and the little throwaways like, oh, screw cap, you know, <laughs> the way that every detail of this wine that he has somehow put money into is just disappointing him. It is just not good enough from the packaging to its where it's from, to the grape, to the style of farming, to ultimately it's, I can only assume hideous aroma yeah and even a worse to it <laughs> oat barnyard as the great new york magazine critic adam platt used to say when he says you have to meet it halfway oh my god i almost I died i had to shut off i had to shut <laughs> off the episode like it it's kind of it, it was it was kind of amazing i mean look i people know i've i've put this information out there publicly but i i i think that Good wine can come from almost any place and can be Ka made Kaya in almost agrees. any way. Kaya McMullen agrees. But, yeah. <laughs> but the idea that, that wine should somehow be aggressively challenging to the palate, <laughs> that somehow this idea that we in the 21st century with our fucked economies and totally broken ravaged soil have figured out a way to do wine better than people in France 200 years ago, like we've cracked the code. <laughs> is such bullshit. It's the height of arrogance and bullshit. And I, I, I love it. I just, I love that he was just like a week after being, after saying the, you know, look, it, it's, it's the Greenwald ethos. There's nothing better than a bracingly chilled glass of white wine at 5 p.m. That he's then going to pour himself a big jug of juice. Yeah. Of just <laughs> like. Toilet wine. Yeah biodynamic natural garbage i loved it what is it it's, it's, it's quite it's quite bad isn't it yeah <laughs> the, the it. fact that he checks another bottle is is the bad <laughs> one he's just like maybe that was a bad bottle i'll check another one um he's, he's so disappointed and it's so you know i i don't know there is no there is no rhyme or reason to making of good tv and we've talked about this in other contexts recently on the podcast that like if you ask the people responsible for a success more often than not, they will be just as flummoxed and surprised as the people who are responsible for a disaster. Because when you're in it, you're not really aware of it. But I can't help but, even though I know that, when Succession is humming, as it was in this episode, I have I, I go to this impossible place where I'm like, they must have a writer's room on top of their writer's room, where right. every page passes through, and it only goes to air, or goes to production, if it checks every imaginable box. Like, is this funny? Yes. Is this insightful? Yes. Is this giving us perspective on the characters? Yes. Is this exactly the right moment to begin the scene and get out of the scene? And does it showcase the massive acting talent that we have appropriately? I mean, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And that's not how it works. And I'm sure that, you know, when we get to talk Jesse Armstrong again, he will laugh at the suggestion <laughs> that there's that, that there's time sure, for that, that type that, of, th of those uh, kinds of those kinds of checks and balances. But but of that kind of rigor, but but when it's working, man, as it was for me in this episode, you said, I mean, you you structured, because you are a master of structure yourself, this podcast to get to the scene with the wine. And I was in such ecstasies over its trenchant visceration of the American political landscape that I forgot about the time Tom drank the barnyard, <laughs> barnyard wine. Like, I just forgot that that was also this episode. That's, yeah. how, that's how rich it was. Well, it contains multitudes. Uh, so does this podcast. We can wrap it up there unless you have any other notes you wanted to share on this episode. I just I'm curious how Kaya felt about the wine scene or and about you calling her out for her her love of the noble grape. I myself am perfectly happy with a ten dollar bottle of wine. <laughs> so you would not go for the Roy family vineyard of biodynamics? That depends on the price range. <laughs> oh Kaya. Gotta get you a wine of the month club for Christmas. Consumer uh, is king. Uh, that voice you just heard was Kaya McMullen. She produced our episode as she does all of the Watch episodes. We will be taking Thursday off. We hope everybody listening has a lovely Thanksgiving with their friends, family, or 
whoever they choose to spend it with. I hope it's a friends or family, not your enemies. Andy, great seeing you. Great seeing you too, Chris. Have a great holiday with the toilet, your best friend, and a bottle of something better than that. We'll see you next Sunday night for the next episode of Succession. Everybody take care. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.